You're listening to Derm Consult on ReachMD, and this episode is sponsored by Insight. Here's your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Welcome to Derm Consult on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and joining me to examine the emerging role of JAK inhibitors in the treatment of vitiligo is Dr. Raj Chovatia, who's an assistant professor of dermatology and director for the Center of Eczema and Itch at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Chovatia, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to talk about some of the big progress we've made with vitiligo. Well, to start, Dr. Chovatia, would you give us an overview of the current treatment options available for vitiligo? Sure. That's a great question. And I think that the first thing I really want to emphasize is that there's a common misconception that vitiligo is a superficial or even some say cosmetic condition. And that's the first thing I really want to clarify. Not a cosmetic condition, a chronic inflammatory disease with very important autoimmune mechanisms. And we have safe and effective treatments for the disease, obviously in need of more, but there's a variety of sort of different treatment options that exist right now. So many of the first line treatments are oftentimes topical anti inflammatory therapies. So topical corticosteroids, topical calcineurin inhibitors are two common ones. Largely, these are pretty broadly acting, so they're not specifically targeted, and so thus they do have some issues in terms of long-term efficacy and durability in terms of response. Phototherapy, particularly narrowband UVB-based phototherapy, is another very common one that's oftentimes combined with topical therapies, and a theme that you hear a lot in vitiligo therapy is combination approaches. Most people are doing multiple things at once, highlighting sort of some of the difficulty in actually treating the disease with current options that we have right now. There are oral immunosuppressive agents that can be used in certain contexts, particularly in terms of rapidly spreading disease. So there's many pulses of oral steroids that are used. There's some data for sort of more traditional oral immunosuppressive medications as well. And finally, there's surgical techniques out there where oftentimes people can do various types of grafting. This is tissue, melanocyte transfer, epidermal transfer. It's not available everywhere. It's a bit labor intensive. And then finally, for folks who have sort of quite a bit of body surface area in terms of vitiligo, there is actually an FDA approved treatment for depigmentation. This is not repigmentation, but this is rather to make the smaller amount of remaining skin match the rest of the pigmented skin. And so this is monobenzone or monobenzyl ether. And then of course, there's a variety of cosmetic camouflage options as well that are out there. But bottom line, just highlighting sort of what the landscape looks like and what the really big sort of needs are, I think we really need a much more straightforward treatment regimen. Well, as a quick follow-up to that, where do gaps in the vitiligo treatment landscape exist? So another really good question, and one I'm glad we're talking about now, because, you know, we've been doing a variety of different treatments for vitiligo over a lot of years. For instance, topical corticosteroids, which are our first-line treatment, we've been using these for 50-plus years, but there's really no specific guidance in general on optimal regimen, frequency, duration. You go back in the literature, you're not going to find very many trials, specifically randomized controlled trials, phase three type trials for topical corticosteroids. In addition to just limited trials in general in the vitiligo space, we know that there's a lot of heterogeneous study design. So it's really hard to compare efficacy of one treatment to another treatment and what's the best option. Additionally, there's always been a historical issue with diversity in our populations for studies and vitiligo is no exception. And we know that the psychosocial burden of vitiligo in particular affects certain patient populations more than others. If I really had to think about the big buckets that I want to think about innovation and improvement with vitiligo therapy, really, you want something that's going to be durable, that's going to keep working. You want something that's going to work fairly quickly so you can really put a dent into rapidly spreading disease. 
You want something that's going to be safe so you feel comfortable using it in the long run. You obviously want something that's going to stop depigmentation. That's step one. And then step two is stimulating repigmentation. If I'm going to be greedy, I want high levels of repigmentation. That's really what our patients want as well. And then there's the other aspects, really balancing something that gives you good cost, you have access, something that's feasible. And I think all of that together, in my mind, is the perfect vitiligo therapy. And that sort of summarizes a lot of the gaps that are out there as far as care goes. With that background in mind, let's zero in on JAK inhibitors. What are they and how do they work to treat vitiligo? Great question. And one that sort of gets more complicated the deeper you dig, but let's try to bake this down into the most simplest terms. And I think that we can take sort of a bigger step back and just talk about the general pathogenesis of vitiligo itself. And then I think it becomes really clear of the important role that jack inhibition may play. So when we think about the inflammation and autoimmunity that's going on beneath the surface in vitiligo, there's multiple nodes of activity that are involved. So we know that there's some intrinsic defects in melanocytes, the pigment-producing cells. They tolerate oxidative stress a little differently. They don't necessarily connect correctly. They're not lined up in the right way. We know that there's some genetic predilection with the disease as well, right? So there's family history that can increase risk. There's a number of different gene loci that have come out of GWAS studies that have shown some degree of association. And we know that there's different mutations in certain genes related to the stress response and an immune response as well. When it comes to oxidative stress, we know that there's reactive oxygen species that are released from the melanocytes themselves. And this causes an imbalance between pro and anti-accident mechanisms. And all of this together leads to an increased stress state. And finally, we know that there's an immune process going on here, both activation of the innate arm of the immune system, and then most importantly in this disease, the adaptive arm of the immune system. And so there appears to be a loop between cells that are in the skin and CD8-positive T cells. These CD8-positive T cells seem to recognize melanocyte antigens, ones they really shouldn't be recognizing. And so some of the words that you hear thrown around in the literature are GP100, melanin, and MART1, tyrosinase. These are all proteins found in melanocytes, and these are all things recognized by your own T cells. And we know that these T cells are a really important source of interferon gamma production. We also know that cells in the skin produce quite a bit of chemokines, another type of inflammatory signal. CXCL9 is an important one for recruitment of immune cells. CXCL10 is an important one for localization of immune cells. And so there's this loop going on between cells in the skin and immune cells of production of each of these different signals. Now, the bigger question is, how do these signals transmit their information to the inside of the cell to cause changes in transcription and translation of pro-inflammatory factors. This is where the JAK-STAT pathway comes in. So JAK literally stands for Janus kinase, STAT stands for signal transducers and activators of transcription. You can think of the JAK-STAT pathway as this little relay race or intermediary system that translates a signal from the outside of the cell into information that's recognized in the inside of the cell that causes downstream effects in transcription and translation. So the JAK proteins typically associate in pairs on the intracellular portion of different receptors for signals like interferon gamma, CXCL9, and CXCL10. JAK1 and 2 are two important JAK proteins that are involved in a lot of this signaling. So you could imagine that if you were to actually inhibit the activity of JAK protein, you could actually stop the signaling process very early on and stop it across multiple different signals that are important in vitiligo. In this way, JAK inhibition represents a huge evolutionary leap forward into how we can sort of specifically and broadly attack inflammation when it comes to a disease like vitiligo. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Derm Consult on ReachMD. 
I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and I'm speaking with Dr. Raj Chovatia about JAK inhibitors for the treatment of vitiligo. Switching gears here a bit, Dr. Chovatia, how do we know which of our patients with vitiligo may benefit from a JAK inhibitor? I think one of the places I like to start is thinking about what are JAK inhibitor therapeutic options for our patients with vitiligo and thinking about the indications in the way that they were studied. And so there's one JAK inhibitor currently that's approved for the treatment and repigmentation of non-segmental vitiligo. This is topical ruxolitinib cream, which was recently approved. And the indication for this particular drug is the topical treatment of non-segmental vitiligo in adult and pediatric patients 12 years of age and older. So I think this highlights a couple of important points, right? So somebody who's 12 and up might be a very good candidate. Somebody who has non-segmental vitiligo. So let me explain that concept for a bit. Vitiligo historically has been characterized in sort of two major buckets. There's non-segmental, which 80-90% of vitiligo, and then sort of 10% or smaller, this is going to be the segmental variant. Segmental vitiligo seems to occur much more rapidly, occur oftentimes in a unilateral or even people say dermatomal distribution, and seem a bit more refractive to therapy and probably has different underlying mechanisms. And potentially the way it's involved has something to do with the initial migration of melanocytes in the skin. Non-segmental vitiligo, or oftentimes just what's called vitiligo, is the more common type that we're used to seeing across different mucosal surfaces, lips and fingertips and face and generalized patterns. And so this is the one that's been much better studied in the case of JAK inhibition. So that's usually the type of vitiligo you're thinking about. Now, once an appropriate patient begins treatment, what are some of the most common adverse events they may experience and how might we monitor for them? I think that when it comes to thinking about treatment, efficacy is always important, but you can't forget that safety is the other half of that coin. And really the one that probably matters to our patients sometimes as much or even more. So in the case of topical ruxolitinib, which does have phase three data available that led to its approval as a treatment for vitiligo, the most common adverse reactions that are sort of occurred in the phase three trial, and there was two of them, were acne and about 6% of patients, application site pruritus or itching in about 5% of patients. And then it kind of goes goes back down 4321% nasopharyngitis headache urinary tract infection a little bit of redness around the application site and then pyrexia as well so bottom line pretty favorable treatment profile overall in terms of the most common things that were observed now when it comes to jack inhibitors in general no matter whether it's an oral jack inhibitor or a topical jack inhibitor the entire class has a class wide boxed warning that was mandated by the FDA and this boxed warning contains wording that talks about serious infections mortality, cancer, major adverse cardiovascular events, and thrombosis. And so a question that oftentimes comes up in those clinician-patient discussions is, what is this box warning? Where did it come from? Is it something I should be worried about? And so it's important to think about the context of where this wording comes from and how it relates to the therapeutic option that you're considering. So a lot of the wording inside this box warning comes from a very long-term 10-year phase four post-marketing study looking at a different JAK inhibitor, one of the earlier, broader acting ones, tofacitinib, in the context of rheumatoid arthritis patients who are over the age of 50, who had at least one cardiovascular risk factor. And they followed these folks to understand whether or not there was an increased signal in some of these areas. And so these areas that are spelled out in the box warning are all ones where it seems like there might've been sort of a slightly higher rate of these in patients treated with that JAK inhibitor versus standard of care with a TNF-alpha biologic agent. Well, as those final thoughts bring us to the end of today's program, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Raj Chovatia, for joining me to discuss JAK inhibitors for the treatment of vitiligo. Dr. Chovatia, it was great having you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. This episode of Derm Consult was sponsored by Insight. 
To access this and other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash DermConsult, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.